It's Machine Yearning from Assist. It's a podcast where we think and dream about the future of AI, the talking internet, and how we are reshaping our culture. This chapter is an excerpt from our longer conversation with Catherine Hume. Catherine Hume came to us via Robin Sloan, a great friend of the pod. In this chapter, Catherine does a fantastic job of walking us through the ways language gives us meaning and the challenges facing AI as we wade into the trickiest thicket of all, how all humans form relationships. Catherine works at Integrate AI now and has done product, marketing, investment, and mentored startups. We loved our time with her, and we think you will too. Enjoy. What is the difference between AI thinking and natural thinking? Are they, are they fundamentally different? I think there's certain aspects of natural thinking and AI thinking that are the same and others that are really different. So one of the big capabilities and breakthroughs in AI over the past like five years has been in the field of what they call computer vision. So this is basically you show a picture, excuse me, you show a computer a picture of a cat or a dog or a glass of wine or like a baby. And basically it could come out and it can give you a label and say, this is a cat. Uh, So then you say, all right, so is that like the same way that we as humans recognize a cat? Yes and no. So from the yes perspective, um, basically, these systems are trained where they make a mathematical model. So when I say mathematical model, I literally mean like, if you remember back to when you learned algebra in high school and you had like y equals f of x, like a function. So um, some of those functions can be pretty simple, like y equals 3x. And unfortunately, that's, that's not complex enough to do something like recognize a cat in a picture. But if you take it and you say y equals like, imagine projecting this out into 50 dimensions, which is a cool imaginative exercise, right? Like we can imagine three because we live in them. Uh, We can maybe add on like time as a dimension or maybe color and get us ourselves up to like six. But imagine now having to go up to like 50 million, you know, and it's like my mind gets blown. There's no way for us to even have an intuition. Like we can't like imagine that in our mind, but that's how many dimensions these functions are working with when they are presented with some super complex data and then they are asked to do something like say what's in that data. So then we say, all right, so is that like or dislike human thinking? Like it is because our brains are super complex computational machines that can take in all sorts of information and do stuff with it. What we can do that computers can't though is if we're shown three pictures of cats, we kind of start to see the patterns and familiar and like similarities between them. And if we see a fourth picture, we can get a sense of what that is. If you're a machine today, you need to see like 50,000 in order to start to get a sense of, you know, what catness is. So they can't construct like a schematic representation of catness um, as easy as we can. So we come, we come hardwired with um, some pretty cool processing tools. And is so what changed in the world that there's just enough machine readable data to start training now it, it like and all of our language is online and so we're putting all this machine readable text all day into a area where it can be read is that what's changed in the world of like or is it the models have gotten better or the data's gotten better like what's changed it's a combination of the three but i think it's fundamentally the first two that you mentioned so computers are a lot faster um, and also the shape of the underlying hardware has shifted. So like the, if you think about like Silicon Valley and what they call central processing units, basically chips that were like, you know, sort of running the technological revolutions of the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, 
they took electrons and they processed them in a line. And the math that's powering AI does things in sort of crisscrosses. Like it's like, so it's beneficial to have these lattice structures where electrons can cross paths and move in and out of one another. And those chips actually came from video games. So they're graphical processing units and uh, they were developed for purpose A. And then somebody was like, hey, what if we try this with this AI stuff? And they were like, oh shit, that just went like, (laughs) we went from having to take weeks to train an algorithm to being able to do it in like hours and not, if not minutes. Um, Once it's trained, is it trained or does it always keep learning? Depends on the, depends on the system. So for some of them, like, you know, you sort of do this huge training process um, and then let it loose in the wild and it's, it's good enough for jazz. Uh, Most of the time, the phenomenon that you're trying to predict or model changes. So it's actually really great to start off with uh, a model that makes a lot of mistakes um, but then learn and get like real time, you know, feedback from the world in time. Can we focus back to language? Because you said what changed about photos breakthrough in the last five years. But are there breakthroughs in language? So there was this big shift over the past five years in, in terms of how statistical systems, machine learning systems are programmed that are enabling them to capture more of the nuance in language. So uh, old school natural language processing, which is the subfield in like the overall umbrella term of AI that focuses on language, basically was built on the, so the, the, the task at hand is language is a mess. It has so much nuance. There's so many like nitty gritty details that we, that we process when we extract meaning from some utterance and like sort of sequence of sounds. And in the past, uh, what a natural language processing practitioner would do would be to take a messy sentence and sort of break it down into parts. So it'd be like, this is the subject, this is the verb, this is like the object, right? So things that you learn when you learn grammar, when you're in grammar school. And then they would use those parts and sort of put them into a database and start to find regularities on them. So there was a huge step that was the human mind coming in and taking something complex and making it more simple so that it could become tractable using computers. Do they call that entities? Yep, there's entity resolution and extraction and stuff like that. And um, the shift in the new deep learning paradigm is we say, let's go bottoms up as opposed to top down. So let's stop trying to impose meaning onto things and sort of tease it out using structure and just feed in millions of examples of real live sentences and allow like the complexity to stay and not reduce it down into these simplifying assumptions and just allow the computers to sort of pick up those patterns and be able to execute tasks like translation or, you know, sentiment analysis, whatever that may be. And therefore we're, we're enabling, like we're keeping some of the complexity in the language in the model. So it's able to pick up a lot more interesting and nuanced stuff. The trade-off there is that sometimes it's harder for us to understand exactly what the model's picking up on, why it's found nuance. So we sort of lose control over the system. Um, because we have to in order, you know, we, we're not, we're not using our mind to try to sort of bake simplicity into the process where we're sort of allowing there to be more complexity. So how does this work? I take millions of sentences of any language or one language? You normally want to stick with one as opposed to just sort of random. Does, um, it, does a certain language work better than another? Depends on how many training examples you have. So what we're doing is you take a sentence And then basically the first pass is to represent it as a series of numbers in what we call vector. And the numbers are sort of projected into space. So you you turn it into like a geometrical 
arrow, if you will, okay? And then what, this is what I found. This is why I got into the field in the first place. It was so fascinating to me that you, when you turn language, sort of process it sequentially and turn it into this number, you can then do mathematical operations on it. Like you can add, subtract, multiply, all the things you do when you've got like, you know, a line in space. And, and then you, you, so you do all that processing in the world of math and then you output again, sort of a, a language, like a sentence representation. And it's as if it's been doing sort of language the way we think about it, right? It's, it's as if it's been finding grammatical relationships or semantic relationships, but all that it's doing is it's using math as a proxy for meaning and miraculously it works and it doesn't work perfectly and it makes all sorts of mistakes, but like we can use math as this approximation space for meaning, which is like, I find mind blowing. I mean, really so exciting. What does that mean? It means that there's something going on in how our minds, if we were able to like cut open our brains and look in and sort of observe the processes of how neurotransmitters are flitting around from place to place and all these little connections that are made between synopses to make meaning like we're doing right now, having this conversation, we'd see something that was a much more complex, fancy version than these artificial intelligent neural networks are doing, right? So I don't want to give the impression that it's like there's a direct analog between how brains work and how these machines work because they're not, it's more like a metaphor than it is like an exact replica. But it does mean that there's some sort of mathematical foundation for the way in which we communicate with one another. You know, if we, again, if we could peer into our brains with some special magnifying glass, we'd be able to see. Wow. And I would wonder, like, what is meaning then? Yeah, for sure. Well, does it matter? Does, <laughs> does it, it matter as much as we think? I mean, in terms it? of lingu- linguistic meaning. Does it or not? I mean, I take that from a perspective of um, it certainly has transactional value. So, uh, so, you know, we're here today because we were able to exchange an email and agree upon a time and a place. And that time and place had a referent. So indeed, you know, 65 Langton Street is a place that I can look up on a map and I can come there. And when you asked to do a podcast, that had meaning for me. Like it wasn't, you know, and it was different than coming over for pizza with somebody I've never met before. So, you know, it meant <laughs> something different. Um, meaning has so many variables. Has so many variables. And so it has a, it's a token of exchange for us to be able to, like communication is just a form of, you know, uh, being able to do stuff together uh, as opposed to sort of just existing in our own little world where we're unable to actually find a space for commonality. Is miss on, oh, go ahead. I was, but I was going to say, but that's a really different sense of meaning than like the emotional meaning of falling in love, of watching a movie that makes you cry. And then you say like, that's, you know what I mean? So some, something that is meaningful versus like something that has meaning, right? And it's, and has sort of pragmatic transactional value. All right. Thanks for listening. Get in touch on Twitter at assist. DMs are open. We're super interested to hear who you think should appear on the podcast. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode and share this with someone who cares about how we make sense of these changing times. Machine Yearning is made by Paul Chufo and Michael L. Sesser for Limina House. Have a great day.